Great, thanks, and uh, welcome to to everyone. Hope everybody is is well. And um, there's <clears throat> there's a lot to to talk about today. Uh, interestingly, very little of it is related to the material that was discussed in the BDS monitor, which came out, I guess, eight days ago, seven days ago, something like like that. And it's a testament to the to the industry of of the BDS movement, I guess, <clears throat> that that things can change so quickly. The uh, the the first issue that I want to talk about is is obviously Ukraine, <clears throat> and this has a a lot of different dimensions. Um, and uh, here too, within this this fast moving story, um, things have changed very quickly. Now I like all of you have in the last week become experts on Russian military logistics and the details of of uh, Soviet era tire production and, and that sort of thing, all courtesy of Twitter. But um, I want to restrict myself to to just the BDS sphere. And what we've seen in the last week are, are a rapidly changing um, a rapidly changing series of narratives, which began with uh, <clears throat> usurping the the Ukraine story. Let's let's call it, and that's an unfair characterization that diminishes the the gravity of the situation. But equating um, the the Ukraine with Palestine, and that's and that's sort of the the base level. So in a number of public statements and and also in public protests. For example, just I think yesterday in London, the Stop the War um, protest, a number of speakers um, and flags and whatnot equated the plight of the Ukrainians who are currently being invaded by 150,000 Russian troops and having their cities pulverized one after another with the plight of the Palestinians under the occupation. Uh, today or yesterday, um, a person, uh, a celebrity, Gigi Haddad, who's the Palestinian-American, she's the daughter of a, of a Los Angeles real estate um, developer, and she herself is some sort of celebrity model person who is famous because she's famous, uh, stated that she was going to dedicate this year's earnings um, to the victims of Ukraine and Palestine. And just before we went on, I, I saw something about this being picked up by Vogue magazine or Teen Vogue, which have been actually improbable but very important vectors for <clears throat> the BDS narrative, courtesy of, of people like Gigi Haddad um, to, to disseminate uh, their, their message. Um, there was another kind of fast-moving dimension to this last week that uh, the the BDS movement and also a series of uh, officials and and media types connected to or or past members of the Obama wing of the Democratic Party criticized Israel for its inaction about. Uh, about Ukraine and and for not taking a side and trying to to uh, stay neutral, allegedly. And there are a number of 
of uh, reports and op-eds and interviews, uh, most notably Christiane Anampour interviewed um, former uh, Secretary of Defense William Cohen, who hasn't been in the administration for, I think, a hundred years. Um, and this is all connected to a broader campaign to vilify Israel uh, in, in, in relation to the upcoming uh, Iran nuclear deal. But this was circumvented or, or this narrative was, was defenestrated, you might say, by the advent of Israeli shuttle diplomacy between uh, Russia and Ukraine, which continues even as of today. And um, <clears throat> so the narrative moved on back to straight BDS. And this was typified, I think, by a very large article in Politico, which came out uh, late yesterday, in which BDS advocates, um, most notably, I think, Yusuf Munayer, um, lamented that sanctions on Russia had been adopted so quickly, and yet Israel, uh, and not on Israel, and Israel, uh, which is the villain, obviously, remains unsanctioned, remains, in, uh, acts with impunity, and it should get the same treatment as, as the Russians do. And that's the narrative for this week. Um, there's a, a kind of sub-narrative that uh, Israel, uh, that's, that's active in parts of the, the Arab and Muslim world, that uh, Israel instigated the, the crisis in the Ukraine uh, in order to generate more Jewish um, so-called refugees who then become settlers in, in Israel. And that's, that seems to still be a kind of minority narrative um, promulgated in the more conspiratorial corners of Arab and Muslim media. But uh, th this idea that, that Israel acts with impunity, whereas uh, the, the global community cracks down on Russia, um, is, is an important one. And that, I think, is going to have some traction going forward, particularly, and again, this goes back to Iran, when it can be used as a kind of bludgeon against, uh, against Israel by administration-connected individuals and, and media <clears throat> in order to shut people up or implicitly threaten Israel over the impending, it seems, um, agreement over uh, regarding a, a deal between Iran and uh, the international community, which would lift sanctions on on Iran and uh, basically permit the its nuclear program to go go forward. Um, but there's another dimension to to the Ukraine story, let's call it, and that has to do precisely with sanctions. And what we've seen in the last week, more or more or less, are a series of, of quite unprecedented 
actions on the parts of both governments, but also corporations around the world, <clears throat> which I regard as, as of dubious legal and strategic um, value, punishing Russians for the actions of the, uh, of the Putin regime and military. So uh, hundreds of corporations, uh, top, top shelf corporations, Nike and, and all this have um, announced that they are withdrawing from Russia and closing their operations there. Most significantly from a strategic perspective, uh, companies like uh, American Express, MasterCard, and Visa suddenly withdrew from uh, the Russian market. So that's 140 some odd million people whose credit cards no longer worked. And instantly, within hours, uh, Russian banks announced an agreement with uh, some gigantic Chinese uh, kind of banking outfit to uh, link their link their credit cards to this to this new new arrangement. So China has been the, the the largest recipient of of the or beneficiary rather of geopolitical uh, fallout from this precipitous and I think. Um, very poorly thought out disconnection of the entire Russian economy from from the global economy, and I think I think the implications for BDS are are really quite obvious and quite ominous that uh, corporate entities acting on their own, not in response to government uh, to Western sanctions have decided that they will signal their solidarity with the Ukrainian cause, which is just, by punishing Russian, um, the Russian population and, and creating a, an economic catastrophe in Russia, driving millions of people into poverty, depriving uh, the, the rest of the country, uh, the rest of the world rather, of the critical strategic materials that only Russia produces. And I would point um, to the increase in the price of nickel yesterday by, I think, 90%. Um, and by driving Russia basically into the arms of, of China. The point being, if it can happen to Russia, it can happen to anybody. And in theory, it could happen to Israel. My nightmare scenario is that um, uh, adversaries such as Hamas and Hezbollah have a, are observing this, preparing provocations um, against Israel, missile attacks and and uh, cross-border incursions and and so on, um, in order to provoke retaliation and then wave the bloody flag as they always do but using the echoes of uh, Ukraine as, uh, as part of their supporting narrative in order to get corporations, once again, to cut, cut off Israel and, and uh, adopt, in effect, adopt BDS.
Now we've we've seen this actually much closer to home. We saw this last month in Canada, where where truckers um, angry about uh, the the continuation of pandemic lockdowns uh, created a convoy and shut down parts of the capital city of Ottawa for a week or two, whatever it was. The result was that the Canadian government essentially depersoned um, hundreds of participants, uh, cutting off credit cards, expropriating funds, cutting off insurance, and so on. Point being, once again, that uh, it can be done by corporations, it can be done by governments. And there are broad civil liberties concerns, there are specific legal concerns. And uh, once, and, and it all can be done now on the part of global corporations through the adoption or, or sort of with reference to environmental and social and governance rules, new series of international standards adopted by, uh, increasingly under adoption by, by corporations, which in effect give corporate leaders a series of utterly malleable guidelines to pursue nebulous and ever-shifting goals under the rubric of, of social and environmental causes, which then can then be applied to the cause du jour, whether it's Canadian truckers, whether it's the Russian population, uh, whether it's uh, people who exercise their, their freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. Um, and of course, potentially and ominously to, to Israel as a whole. So uh, I think that this is, this is a, a, a difficult situation that has, that has developed. The speed at which it has developed, literally a matter of, of weeks, speaks to, um, speaks to a condition of the postmodern world whereby activists or situations or calls uh, or narratives can be propagated instantly and then um, result in, in social action well thought out and also poorly thought out social action within a matter of days or even hours. And I should point out as well, um, with respect to this, with respect to the Ukraine situation, um, that Facebook um, withdrew from the Russian market, TikTok, which is a Chinese-owned company, uh, withdrew, and thereby depriving the world of uh, insights into what actually is is going on within and what people actually think, and vice versa. So the partitioning of the information world, which is consistent with the desire to vilify particular populations, which at the end of the day is going to um, rebound on Israel, as we know, is, is extremely, extremely ominous. Um, with respect to this, and, th and that leads me, I guess, to just keeping an eye on the, on the clock here, that leads me to another, 
another uh, issue, um, and that's the political the political realm. And those of you who read the the rather oversized uh, BDS monitor last week, and again, my apologies for for that. Um, know that the the as the midterms approach. Uh, politics is going to suck up more and more attention, specifically within the BDS realm. And as we've discussed on these on these broadcasts for this, the last several years, BDS is moving more and more towards the center of the American political agenda. But here, um, it's necessary for me to make two important points. First, uh, SPME doesn't take a, a stance on candidates or or politics, except vis-a-vis -vis their stand on on BDS. So it's neither a Democratic nor a, a Republican issue. That said, um, BDS is almost exclusively a Democratic problem or issue. That said, um, I should note that the, that the Republican Party um, has not exactly covered itself with glory with respect to Jews and anti-Semitism. Um, and I'll I'll mention only two rather bizarre comical figures here, and that's Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the space lady, laser lady from Georgia, and um, Paul Gosar, and I'm forgetting which uh, state he's from, who appeared at a white supremacist, who appeared alongside a white supremacist at a at a far right kind of political convention about a week or two ago. And I'm, I'm looking at my notes uh, here, and it says, Republicans are lunatics, um, which is obviously a, an overstatement. Um, but there's no, there are no advocates of BDS in this. There may be uh, some anti-Semites here and there at the state level and maybe even at the national level, but there are no advocates of, of BDS per se. Whereas within the Democratic Party, as, as we know, unfortunately, BDS is a critical central issue, and it will be um, going forward to the midterms and beyond. As of now, there are close to three dozen Democratic retirements from the House. Um, and most of these are in anticipation of what will likely be, not necessarily, but I think most people agree that there'll be a democratic wipeout in the midterms later this year over the economy excuse me and over over social issues in which bds will play a a small to moderate sized role um how what what this will mean in terms of bds um is is obviously difficult to to predict for the Republican Party, BDS has been a very convenient issue as well. It's a it's a very easy way for them to prove their kind of pro-Israel bona fides and and uh, tr let's say traditional values. Although it's obviously more complicated than that. Um, <clears throat> in but they they they've done it in ways that are not always um, helpful or or well thought out, let's say. On the other hand, for the Democrats, there's a, there's a complementary issue that um, in 
in all the districts where there are retirements, as well as in, in other districts where there are you know, sort of just challengers, um, that left-wing and even far-left um, candidates are being challenged by uh, newcomers from even further to the left, for whom BDS is, is a central, uh, pivotal, paramount kind of issue. So uh, things can go things can go uh, in in a variety of ways and potentially get much worse, uh, at least in in the House. Regardless of of if the Republicans actually do win the House in uh, in the fall. On the other hand, in a variety of districts, there are more centrist or center left Democrats who are challenging members of the squad. And I'll just mention one because he's unfortunately my representative and that's Jamal Bowman in, uh, in New York, whose district encompasses the Bronx, Southern Westchester, and which will be extended in 2023, I think far North into Putnam County. So there'll be this kind of strange, um, intestine-shaped district that goes 40 miles north to south it makes no sense at all. But Bowman is being challenged by not one, but two centrist candidates, local candidates, um, both African-American, um, both favorable to Israel, who point out most correctly that Bowman has been absent in the district. And this is an accusation that applies to virtually all members of the squad is that they are much happier to be on the national um, on the national stage showboating around about issues like defunding the police and uh, the Green New Deal and um, attacking Israel than they are um, doing prosaic business in their own districts about keeping posts post offices open and other things that um, representatives are supposed to be doing so I think that there will, there is a, a good chance that at least in some places, and I, I don't know all the districts obviously around the country where these dynamics are going to play out, but I think that there's a good chance that um, in, in a couple of places, maybe even here in New York, that more centrist Democrats will uh, will replace folks like, like Bowman um, <clears throat> and even folks like Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib are, are, are facing challengers, centrist Democrat challengers. And uh, regardless of your, of your politics, of, of how you are registered, we, this should be supported because if nothing else, it returns the, um, returns the actual district to the focus of, of the campaign and of, uh, of the, the job of being representative. So um, that said, I want to talk very briefly just to, to, to finish up um, today about um, academia. Well, let me just mention um, the amnesty report because Asaf spoke very briefly about it at the beginning. And uh, this is something that was discussed a bit in the, in the monitor last week. And I think what's interesting at, at this point, and it's still early, is that it's pretty much a kind of dud that uh, because it's more or less a cut and paste job from other NGO 
uh, reports, so to speak, about Israel, and because it's so factually challenged and mendacious, um, that it got and it it was leaked before it was released, and it got slammed, and everybody from local representatives to um, the president of France have basically slammed it. It, it doesn't have. It doesn't have international resonance. It hasn't yet, I think, gotten international traction. Where it will get traction, and it's beginning to, um, is on campus where uncritical readers and thinkers will simply point to it and say, well, Amnesty said that Israel is an apartheid state. This must be true because um, human rights is our, our most uh, fervent belief. And it will be part, and it's already a little bit, part of the narrative, the, di the diatribe, and, and uh, will be part of BDS resolutions and things. Um, what I think is more interesting, and I'll conclude on this for the last two, two minutes or so, are two developments in the, in the academic space, in the institutional space, which are strange and, and to my mind, kind of counterintuitive. One uh, is at uh, the University of Toronto. Toronto has a long, I now, long and ignoble history of, of BDS in the student government. Student governments are much more, excuse me, let's say powerful um, than in, in Canada as well as in Britain than they are in, in the States. Uh, and there have been a number of, of resolutions at the University of Toronto and its various campuses excoriating Israel and banning, uh, ultimately, you know, banning anyone or any, any student-funded student entity interacting with anything that supports the occupation. And we saw last year that, that uh, this kind of nebulous or broad formulation basically forbade Jewish organizations from buying goods that were made in Israel. Um, and this produced, produced a brouhaha. Anyway, um, about two days ago, the university decided to withhold uh, fees from the student, the student government, um, a percentage of the fees. The university collects the student sort of activity fees from the students as part of tuition, and then gives some of these to the student government for its activities and shenanigans. But they decided to withhold about $11,000 because all of their BDS activities represented overt discrimination against Israelis and Jews, and um, the university was having, was having no part of it. And this is this is a a kind of radical change, and I think it's a very very good model. And I've been arguing for many years that public universities should be put under the spotlight precisely because of this, uh, on this basis, for using student activity fees, which then get to or, or which then end up funding. Um, anti-Israel activities against the wishes of of the students, and and there is 
there's all sorts of shenanigans that, that goes on. Student governments are, are a black hole and millions of dollars are, are spent um, on, on politics of, of various sorts. And, and this model should be looked at more closely uh, at Toronto <clears throat> and it should be applied. And for the lawyers out there, I think uh, you know, send a letter to your alma mater on your legal, legal letterhead saying um, what's, what's going on with the student activity fees funding all sorts of unsavory activities and, and maybe we can see some broader traction. Um, and finally, I'll talk about uh, the University of Washington, where the Jewish Studies program returned several million dollars of an endowment to uh, a donor who, uh, who was angry that the recipient, the individual recipient, had basically adopted an anti-Israel and pro-BDS stance. The donor, uh, a wealthy um, Sephardi individual in, in the Seattle area, was very upset that this faculty member had participated, had made anti-Israel statements and participated in, in the um, sort of outburst after uh, last year after the, the brief Gaza war. And somehow got the university to return, I think it's five or six million dollars out of uh, out of a larger gift. Now this, of course, raised everyone's hackles on the faculty side that this was a horrible infringement on on academic freedom and so on. And you can't have can't have people giving money and then asking it to be spent in the way that they wanted it to. We should be allowed to do whatever we want with this money. Um, it turns out that the faculty member still has an endowed chair, still has his or her freedom of speech, um, but the, the donor's name and uh, will no longer be on, on the chair. The, the program hasn't been defunded, but the, the donor wants no part of it. Um, details are still kind of scant about how exactly from a legal financial point of view this came about. And I think that this is really interesting. And I think that this is a really good model. And anyone who's been on these calls with me before knows that my philosophy is never ever um, give any money to a college or, or university. Uh, that said, people still do. And um, how, uh, how to do it then becomes, becomes the question. Setting limits, setting conditions, setting um, making it an annual, an annual gift rather than a, an open-ended multi-year kind of gift, that sort of thing. These are very important. And as we learn more, I think we'll, we'll find out um, how good a model this is, or, or actually is, is this a good model? But uh, asking questions, making conditions, not just trusting the university um, <clears throat> is is extremely, extremely important. And um, so maybe that's a good place to end and, and let's, let's take some, some questions then.
Great. Thank you, Alex, as always, for the overview. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, so uh, as Alex said, the floor is now open. Uh, so if you have questions, please type them in either the chat or raise your virtual hand. We'll be able to unmute you. Um, Alex, let me start us off, I guess, you know, two points, you know, to your, uh, to, to your comments uh, that I thought we should also tackle as well. Uh, one, going back to your comments about the Democratic Party, um, do you want to comment maybe about uh, the upcoming departure of Ted Deutsch and what that means for the party as far as him being one of the more centrist voices regarding our issues regarding anti-Semitism and BDS and moving on to the AJC? And the other point that, you know, separately, uh, you know, also regarding um, your discussion about the economics of all of this uh, and corporations is um, the latest lawsuit that has come out of Israel regarding Ben and Jerry's uh, and the implications on that politically, obviously, uh, the, you know, the argument in that lawsuit is that they are breaking both Israeli and American law. And maybe you want to also tackle some of that aspect as an example of what corporations are involved in and doing uh, regarding the, the larger space. Sure. Well, um, regarding the departure of, of Ted Deutsch, um, I, don't, I don't know Ted, jo Ted Deutsch. Um, I think he's been in Congress for a dozen or more years, um, some 15, 16 years maybe. Um, centrist Democrat, a very, very strong supporter of Israel. And um, from, a, from a very um, strong pro-Israel district in, in Florida, I'm not sure which part of Miami someplace, I think. Um, he's 55, that part um, stuck in my head. And he's, he's had enough. I think he was made an offer, I, I suspect, he was made an offer that he couldn't refuse to go to the um, American Jewish Committee, which was looking for some time, at least a year, more, more than a year, for new leadership to replace the retiring David Harris. Um, Ted Deutsch will make, let's be, let's be polite and say, a very, very healthy salary at, um, at the AJC, far more than he would have uh, in in Congress, it gives them a different kind of a different kind of platform and a different challenge, which is to revitalize an organization that uh, frankly needs revitalization. That is has has like many like most um, mainstream legacy Jewish organizations uh, been not as much in the spotlight and not taking the lead on, on issues like BDS. Um, Deutsch was very active last spring during the, during the Gaza conflict, confronting um, members of the squad on the floor of the house. And his voice, I think will be, will be very much missed in, in Congress and his, his leadership. And I hope that, I hope that he can be replaced by someone who is as vocal and as active and that he can bring his energy to the AJC, which in my opinion, um, speaking only for myself, um, really needs it and uh, needs to be active on, in a variety of spaces, not least of all uh, regarding, regarding BDS. 
the Ben and Jerry situation, which has been around now for a while, is is very odd. It has some it has some odd dimensions to it, but it does relate to this larger e, ESG environmental and uh, social governance kind of paradigm that's taking over uh, corporate corporate America, the corporate world. So there's a lawsuit by the Israeli distributor alleging that um, Ben & Jerry's, which announced last year that it was withdrawing from the Israeli market, withdrawing its license from the its Israeli partner to produce Ben & Jerry's on the basis of um, you know, concerns or accusations of, of uh, the, the occupation. So now they're being, now they're being sued. Um, and this guy, this Israeli um, franchise owner alleges that this, this rationale goes against, um, goes against Israeli law and contravenes American law because Ben and Jerry's is owned by Unilever and um, is a multinational. Now, here, here things become very complicated, kind of legally and, and, and structurally. That, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the head of Unilever recently, recently said that, um, <laughs> really, and, and Unilever is a British company. It's not an American company, but it, it it's a gigantic consumer products company, and it has brands that are in America. Lots of lots of brands that are in America, of which Ben and Jerry's is a fairly small one. And they just tried to take over another huge consumer company, and, and I'm blanking out on which one. And um, they failed. And there's so they're facing um, activist investors who are annoyed about the direction of the company. So the, the head of Unilever said that um, we really want to work this out and we're kind of sorry the way that all of this is, is going vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And that we're, we, Unilever, are not boycotting Israel. Unilever, when Unilever bought Ben & Jerry's, which is a number of years ago, there was some sort of deal in which Ben & Jerry's got to keep a sort of separate board and um, manage a certain amount of its own affairs. And according to Ben and Jerry's at least, gave it the right to spout off on social, on social issues um, that as they saw fit. And Ben and Jerry themselves are no longer involved. I don't think they're on the board. They just sort of talk. Um, so who, who, to whom is this is this subject is this company subject? Which laws are uh, apply to Unilever and to Ben and Jerry's? Now I don't know the details of of the Israeli franchisees' lawsuits specifically, but it, it does relate to um, local laws in the United States, which apply to companies and I suppose to brands that are domiciled um, or based in, in various states like Florida, like Arizona, um, like Illinois, all of which expressed a great deal of upset and sold off 
chunks of, of uh, Unilever stock, probably in the, you know, certainly in the tens of millions of dollars, if not the low hundreds of millions of dollars, which didn't affect the company's bottom line, I don't think. The stock price of, of Unilever um, has plummeted over the last few months, but that's all in relation to this failed takeover of, of another uh, company. So, so it's a complicated situation with a million different kind of moving, moving parts. And I, I wouldn't want to comment about uh, the, the legal aspects. On the other hand, um, Representative Lee Zeldin has reintroduced ant federal anti-BDS legislation, which would um, presumably, if, if ultimately adopted, um, and it failed last year and I think the year before, it would subject all U.S. companies to penalties if they boycott Israel on the basis of, of um, you know, adopting BDS. Uh, now, on the other, other, other hand, and I'm running out of hands, as I'm sure are, are all of you, um, how does this apply then to the Russian situation where corporations just decided on their own not pressured by uh, the government to end their businesses in in Russia. Uh, how is how is that how does that work? Um, presumably, there were contracts that were that were broken. Presumably, there were shareholders who are going to be annoyed that the the value of their investments in these various companies are are going down. Um, but boards and and leadership just decided to do this. So there are, the situation vis-a-vis um, -vis BDS and legislation has become dramatically more complicated in the last two weeks. And as a non-lawyer, I, um, I don't have a way to explain how, it, how, it's all, how it's all working or how it's supposed to work, except there are no clear standards, there are no clear guidelines. Um, so, but maybe we'd better move on and take okay. some more questions in, in the time that we have left. Yeah, yeah no, thank you for that. Uh, um, so let's move on to Avi's question. Avi Green has a question uh, who's uh, asking about, uh, are the anti-Israelists uh, ungrateful or do they despise the UAE and Bahrain uh, for signing the Abraham Accords? Uh, yeah, and yes, absolutely they do. Yes. Yeah. And maybe you want to expand also, I mean, the one other aspect, you know, apropos the Ukraine, is how all this is impacting, uh, you know, the Gulf as well. Uh, and, you know, I'm, ad I'm adding and expanding to this unless we have more questions coming in here. You know, the one element that, of course, is less spoken about and I guess is now getting some headway is, of course, the... Um, and you started to talk about the imagery of the occupational stuff and the refugees, but the Palestinian Authority as a recipient of, of, of Russian support uh, funds and their role in all of this, not to mention the role of, you know, the old Palestinian guard and, and the KGB. Right. Well, maybe, maybe we'll start there and then go outward. So the, the, the Palestinian authority has been pretty pro-Russian and its statements have been pretty pro-Russian. In, in this 
crisis. And there was a protest or demonstration organized in, I think yesterday or two days ago in Hebron, and Russian flags were being waved and, and so on. And this is, you know, and as usual, it's very difficult to, to get a handle on what, um, you know, the, the man in the street, so to speak, thinks about this situation, but the, the, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, is, is pretty pro-Russia. And this isn't surprising since uh, the PLO itself is a kind of, um, you know, KGB project for going back to the very origins at the beginning of the 1960s. And um, lots of the, the old guard, the very old guard, like um, Abbas himself, are Russian educated and um and that's where they're the russians were the were the major supporters of the palestinian cause throughout the 70s and 80s and so it's so this part isn't terribly surprising it's not it's not especially flattering i think but it's not terribly not terribly flat uh surprising when you get to the gulf it's a much more complicated equation now the bds movement um, loathes Gulf states, most Gulf states. They loathe, loathe the UAE and Bahrain. They're kind of okay with Kuwait. Um, they loathe anybody who signed the Abraham Accords. And uh, you know, I'll just remind everyone that last month, which I think was February, yes, um, there was a, a whole series of, of statements coming out of the American progressive left, following the Palestinian line that the Abraham Accords are terrible and horrible because they sideline the, the Palestinian cause and create peace from the outside in, but a peace between these autocratic, um, these autocratic uh, little mini states like UAE and, and bigger unfree states like Morocco again, in the view of the progressive left and the BDS movement. But the, the Gulf states themselves are, are very much caught in a, in a bind now. I think their sympathies are not with Russia. They're very much with Ukraine, but they're constrained to a certain extent about what they can say because of, on the one hand, they're, they're facing the prospect of a nuclear deal, an American European nuclear deal with Iran that profoundly, profoundly threatens them. So they are limited in their ability to express support for the US and for the West in, the, in this correct, I think, consensus regarding Ukraine. They're hedging. Um, the Saudi Arabians are frankly very upset with the US and they have they have been hedging for quite some time because the the Biden administration since it came in since before it came in um, targeted the Saudis as part of this realignment of American interests which would shift from Gulf states Saudi and Israel to an alliance with Iran. 
And now, uh, you know, in the, literally in the last week or two, with the American administration begging, demanding that Saudi Arabia and other oil producers increase production in order to make up for uh, for the self-inflicted um, restrictions on American production that the Biden administration introduced and the incredible uh, skyrocketing of, of oil prices on the global market, including in the, in the United States that has happened since the Ukraine war, the Saudis are just saying, no, they're, they're, not, they're not interested in playing ball because they recognize that the, the Biden administration is not their, their friend. And this, this reverberates back on, on Ukraine where they have not been as explicit as perhaps they should be regarding Russian aggression or, uh, and this applies to the Gulf states as well. Um, Saudis have, have, increasing number of deals with China because they're again hedging. So things have become vastly worse in the last year and, and vastly more complicated. And with respect to the BDS movement, they don't have more traction in in these in these areas with the or with these countries. These countries are still their their enemies even for considering normalizing with with uh with israel and they're and they're they've been targeted by the bds movement on the other hand this targeting doesn't amount to anything economically or or really even politically you're not gonna you know, you're not going to affect um, any social change or much less regime change in in saudi arabia or uae um if you're a bds supporter uh, but it works better. So it works better with, with Israel. So it, it's a, it's a little bit of a hall of mirrors, uh, but it's not a good, it's not a good situation. Great. Uh, let's move on to a good segue, I guess, is to, you know, our friend Steve Gersoff's question uh, asking about really how, uh, how much do we think that the average reader, you know, uh, you know, thinks about the comparison between Israel and Palestine versus Russia and the Ukraine um, is it that far-fetched that nobody could see that, you know, the credibility of actually, you know, seeing, you know, work against that narrative and, you know, he's following up. Is it a good idea to show the differences uh, in the relationship or is, or people, uh, I guess I'm adding here, are, are this too, um, you know, the comparison is too easy because, you know, uh, the occupational narrative, something you and I have written and spoke about for so long is religiosity. So once it's, you hit that high note, nobody really cares about the facts, which is you know, what we see on a variety of levels. Right. Well, I mean, let's forget about facts, <laughs> but, but that's, that's, more, that's more of an aside than, than anything else. Um, the average reader, I don't know how much the average reader, what the average reader sees at this point. And I, if, I think the average reader goes, goes to fill up his or her car and sees that gas is now four or five dollars or six or seven dollars um, in some places and that's that's much more that creates a much more compelling 
inner narrative regarding the larger dynamics of the situation. Um, there was a quote in, the, in this piece in Politico yesterday, uh, there was a, a quote from Senator Tom Cotton um, that said something to the effect that, uh, you know, they asked him whether, you know, well, isn't Israel, Israel and Palestine, isn't that the same as, as Russia and Ukraine? And, and Cotton said, well, you know, it's not Israel that, that has 150,000 troops in, you know, invading and pulverizing um, you know, Ukraine right now or, or, or anything else. But that, that again leads me to my concern um, about provocations that uh, Hamas and Hezbollah in particular have always been very opportunistic about creating provocations in order to draw in Israeli responses and and this in order to to draw narratives of Israeli evil, so everybody forgets that uh, that Hamas or, or Hezbollah a few years ago fired dozens, hundreds, thousands of rockets and killed a bunch of civilians, and everybody's much more comfortable looking at the victims, and uh, so to speak, the victims being innocent Palestinians who, um, who are being attacked in this limited time of view by, by Israel. So I think, you know, given, given the, the current media environment and given the current, you know, appallingly short attention span that average information consumers have in the West in particular, this kind of superficial narrative where uh, you, know, you only you only see what your what your the last tweet that that is that comes your way is uh, is very concerning um, you know on this on this regard the the Ukrainians have been extremely effective in in their shaping of the information environment um, the Russian, you know, the Russians went in accusing uh, the Ukrainian government of being literally Nazi drug addicts. I mean, these, this was literally the, the, the terms that were used and um, creating a very bellicose and frankly ludicrous kind of um, impression of themselves and, and their motives. <clears throat> uh, whereas the Ukrainians have been much more effective in communicating with uh, with the West, and with and with the world about their about their situation and their um, their beliefs, and they're much more sympathetic now. I think the reality is that the, they are more sympathetic. They are they are in a terrible situation. They are being attacked by a stronger um, adversary that they are in the process of at least you know grinding to a halt, but these lessons will not be lost on, on anybody else in the world, in any other conflict in the world. And in fact, these kinds of, these kinds of lessons about information environments were to a certain extent pioneered by, um, by Palestinians in their self-created conflicts with, with Israel. And the global media was very happy to ignore that they had basically started these conflicts and we're very happy to 
promulgate the narrative of Israeli aggressors and Palestinian victims. So I think that in that respect, which which again feed into the broader uh, feed into the the, the the BDS narrative, then I think that uh, you know there will be people taking notes uh, going forward about this, and um, it's all it's it will all be in the execution, um, but but we'll have to uh, we'll have to see, and I hope it doesn't come to that. In a in a future conflict, um, I'm not sure that answered the question. Did that answer the question? Uh, I think it did. You know, good oh, job. No. Okay, all good. Uh, well, and unfortunately, our, our time is up, and so uh, it's a good time, I think, to uh, you know. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up things here for today. Uh, so, as always, I want to thank you for unpacking uh, the larger scene. Obviously, things are unfolding on the Ukrainian situation, and that's going to be uh, a contiguous, fluid situation that we're going to be seeing uh, how it all trickles down. But these are there's a lot to think about, a lot to unpack. Um, as always, I want to thank uh, everybody who attended this afternoon, and uh, there is clearly uh, a lot more to be discussed, and, and the, the, we will continue to follow and monitor the information. Uh, that being said, uh, we're also, uh, I would like to alert everybody, we're going to have another webinar uh, next week uh, with uh, Sam Westrop. We'll be talking about uh, the the connection between Islamic Islamist charity, charities and anti-Semitism. Uh, so uh, be on the lookout for that notice. Uh, and as always, we're always here for you for any issues, questions, and concerns uh, that we can be there to help out. So I, I hope everybody is uh, as always, uh, staying safe and healthy, uh, and hopefully the weather will get get better. And uh, we hope to see you in, on our next webinar. So thank you, uh, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Alex, and we will talk soon.